Hey y'all, I'm Jazz. I use she, her, and hers pronouns, and I'm based on Piscataway land in Maryland. Today we're talking about data justice, and you might be asking yourself, why would a Black environmentalist podcast take on this topic? And the answer, as always, is it's all connected. The collection and use of data determines most everything in our lives. For example, studies show that Black children are three times as likely to develop asthma as compared to white children. But why? What does that figure really tell us? It tells us that the impacts of air pollution are not evenly shared, and that alone is a staggering fact, but then when you look at the success of redlining and keeping Black families locked into cities and lower socioeconomic class, the picture gets a bit more clearer. The intentions feel more insidious. The American Lung Association found that those who live in predominantly Black or African American communities suffer greater risk of premature death from particle pollution than those who live in communities that are predominantly white. So this is real, and this is sad, and it's an example of how data collected in isolation can obscure the full story of what's happening to a community. So today, we're going to explore what data justice is and how data activism can empower communities to tell their own stories. Okay, what we need now, a podcast where we invite the people doing the work to do the talking. For those of you who may not know me, by day at Greenpeace, I work on the data team, and also by day, I operate behind the scenes on the What We Need Now podcast. This episode we are talking about is an issue super close to my heart as someone who's also aspiring to be a data activist myself. People love to say the data never lies, and that statement conceals a lot of untruths. The fact of the matter is that data will tell the story we set it up to tell. And when data isn't being collected by a diverse group of people and it's not open access, it can become dangerous. So today we're going to explore what data justice is. We will talk with Rob King and Hamilton Martin of the DC chapter for Data for Black Lives to check in on the ways in which people are working to combat inequalities using data. Well, you were looking for a way to find your ancestry, submitted DNA to meet your family. Then they sold your data off the big tech. Facebook gets rich, you get no respect. F-R-E-E doesn't mean free. Sell your own data.com, baby. Should have read the terms, but was too lazy. Scroll through the page and just hit agree. Now before you got a chance to react. They sold your info to the cops, now the law is getting dispatched. F-R-E-E doesn't mean free. Sell your own data.com, baby. With sellyourowndata.com, you can skip the middleman and give all your information directly to law enforcement and scammers. If anyone's getting rich off of your data, it should be you. Visit sellyourowndata.com.com to learn more. Welcome to What We Need Now. This episode is focused on data justice, and we have here today Rob and Hamilton from the DC chapter of Data for Black Lives. We are super excited to have you here today. If you don't mind just introducing yourself, give us your pronouns, and we'll kick this off. What's up, y'all? Super excited to be having this conversation with y'all today. Uh, My name is Rob King, pronouns he, him, his. And in D.C., of course, with the D.C. chapter of Data for Black Lives. Hey, guys, I'm Hamilton. I use he, him, his pronouns. Uh, I'm also part of the Data for Black Lives DMV hub chapter. I'm very excited 
as Rob is to be here and um, to record with you guys. Awesome. So starting off, what do you all do for Data for Black Lives? Uh, so I'll start at like the national organization. So Data for Black Lives, um, national organization founded by uh, a woman named Yeshi and was started to really combine people who are data practitioners, uh, techies, policy folks, um, and organizers to really fight issues that are at the intersections of big data, tech, and social justice. And it started out as a conference that uh, eventually kind of morphed into chapters as well now. And so within the DC chapter, um, we abide by the same mission that the national organization goes by, um, which is, again, trying to combine those data practitioners and organizers to what we call create concrete and measurable change in the lives of black and brown folks. Um, and most of our work kind of centers on three big things, which is around political education and policy legal work and uh, some data community projects that we do, which is thinking through like, what are things that folks in the community really need from a data tech perspective? And how do we find the folks who can kind of help support that work and build that um, infrastructure out? Awesome. Um, that sounds amazing. And then I guess my other question is then what brought both of you respectively to this work? Like what, yeah, called out to you. So to your first question, what did I do for the hub during this iteration of our leadership? I am on the leadership board. Uh, we call it the leadership team where I am a, a kind of a, I do kind of hybrid role. I I am currently the social chair. I have done, uh, I act as a four-year liaison. We can talk more about what that entails. And I also work with uh, a lot of coalition, local coalition groups uh, who are similarly aligned with some of our goals uh, on the, the policy level. Um, to your second question, I was brought to this work primarily because Rob is one of my best friends out here. And, he's, and he told me, hey, I have this group I'm starting. Um, it is something that you're, you are not familiar with, but I know one thing that you are passionate about is uh, the love of social justice and fighting for people who look like us. And so come on down. We have our first meeting and on this day and you better be there. So that's how I got pretty much involved. That's awesome. Yeah, I guess, Rob, then if you are uh, the one who was dragging Hamilton, what brought you into this work? Yeah. You know, so we call good organizing work right there. <laughs> uh, but no. Or harassment a, or harassment. <laughs> that too. Uh, but um, on a serious note, so my background is in uh, data work and specifically within the education policy area. That's kind of where I started. I think my original goal was to really dive into education um, and specifically from like a quantitative perspective. And I function under the assumption that education would be the great equalizer. And I think as I crunched numbers within the ed policy space and really trying to measure things, I started to realize that was not the case. And then I think through actual experience within school systems, also realized <laughs> that was not the case because um, there are so many different things that impact 
a school system, right? From housing to policing, all of that, right? And so I kind of pivoted to uh, strictly like data work. I'm not a technocrat because I don't think technology or data can solve all human issues, but I do believe data and technology are one of the few things that spans across all industries. And if you can kind of figure out what's going on within that space, you might be able to have somewhat of a decent impact. And I think that in combination with my first job, I started to feel as though the next front of the civil rights movement or just the justice work that needs to be done is kind of centered around big data and technology. Um, It's the next big thing, in my opinion, that's coming or that is kind of here and we're slowly waking up to it. Um, And so knowing that, once I heard about Data for Black Lives um, in that conference, I really wanted to go and be in a space with other people who kind of had that same vision. And it was a beautiful space, loved it. And like I said, it started off as a conference, but we, I knew that there were so many people, especially in this area, the DMV, who wanted to attend that conference, but couldn't for a range of reasons. And so we were like, let's just bring D4BL to the local area. And we did that, put out a call. I pulled Hamilton in, (laughs) as well as a couple of other close friends. And yeah, from there, it organically formed. And that's kind of how I got into the work. And part of the reason I, I continue doing it, it matters to me. But also, I, I take a lot of joy out of finding folks who want to be a part of movement work, but haven't found an avenue for how to really enter into it, especially data and tech folks who feel like, oh, I'm not a, a protester. I'm not the person with the bullhorn and helping them realize, yeah, that's, that's a role within the movement, but it's not the only role. And so how do we open up that space to bring you in, find a, a place where you can do good work because your skills are needed for the movement and yeah, uh, build the ranks of the movement, right? So that's kind of uh, what keeps me going with it. Awesome. I think that's really interesting. So it kind of sounds like for you, it's the, the data is a way to kind of solve like some root issues that are impacting the Black community specifically as well as something that you're super passionate about. And it's also, there's a dire need for data activists and data professionals to be tapping into this sort of space and doing this this sort of work. Which brings me to my, uh, I guess, next question, which is, so like what kind of campaigns or projects um, are you working on? Like, and how are you leveraging that data um, to kind of shift the world in the way that you see fit? Like, the first big thing is political education, right? Um, only because there's there's so many things around big data and technology that a lot of people aren't aware of, right? Or how they participate in that process or how they're used in that process. Um, and so the, the big thing that we're trying to do is one, educate people on that. Because before you can really combat an issue, you got to know what the issue is. Um, and so we spend a lot of time internally, as well as um, in conversations with folks around the, co- the community, talking about specifically government surveillance and data and technology, right? The space of big data and tech is super wide, but I think for us right now, our main focus is government. 
um, surveillance and technology and the big data that comes along with that. So having those conversations with folks around the community, whether that's internally, like in our our general body meetings, or if we're having a Zoom event where we're inviting people from the community as well as other organizers in the DC space to come in and talk about their interactions with surveillance tech, um, with big data, um, to kind of help educate the community as a whole so that we can all get on the same page. Outside of that, the other two pieces, one is like our community data project, which is thinking through, okay, what are some needs in the community at this point in time? Um, especially for a lot of organizers who often are strapped for time and have big ideas that they really want to tackle that they can't tackle on their own. Um, and sometimes there's data work that we can do to kind of support that. Um, and so in one particular area, we're working with another local org, Black-led org, to kind of help build out a app that showcases what are all the possible or vetted resources for legal assistance that a person may need in the community, right? Whether that's taxes or dealing with a policing issue um, or even an education issue. And so helping them design something that is easy for everybody to access. And so doing work like that, but also doing legal and policy work, right? And so in particular, working in coalition with other folks across the city um, to really think through, all right, what kind of technology is being procured by the government? And how can we create a policy or initiative to kind of help halt or stop that? And I think Hamilton can probably go a little bit more in detail about that specifically. This year, we've dived into working with other local groups, Black, Brown, and other uh, local groups who are dedicated to not only social justice, but combating the issues with that uh, technology data collection and uh, data surveillance has on a local level here in DC. Uh, it's been very interesting kind of give, getting out of the uh, data for black lives bubble uh, and seeing what other people have going on in their bubble and trying to find a common solution. So uh, I've really enjoyed, and I think Rob and the uh, everyone at uh, in our hub has really enjoyed kind of going to the meetings and really trying to uh, come up with uh, solutions, not only singularly, uh, but in a broader sense in not only uh, D.C., but perhaps even the, the, the whole DMV region. So within that, I'd heard um, some things talking about surveillance tech and also building apps and just other resources for open access and having just even general access to online. Would either one of you feel like kind of just expanding upon like that issue more of like, either what is surveillance tech and like what kind of impacts does that have directly on people, um, just our lives or even expanding upon like the issues with just simply accessing online and like that disparity. Yeah, for sure. Um, so when we talk about surveillance technology for our hub, we specifically are referring to government surveillance technology, right? So that can be anything from, CCTVs, right, to things that they call stingrays that intercept your text messages to facial recognition technology, which is the big thing that everybody knows about now. Wait, pause. They can intercept our text? That's new to me. Yes. Scary, oh. right? Oh, <laughs> I'm throwing my phone into the ocean. Yes. And a lot of people don't know about that. And so you can have a cop car that can park anywhere in your local area, and they have up to a certain range that they can intercept. 
And so, yeah, people can easily be tracked by the government. And it's something that we saw a lot, especially during the uprisings of 2020. It wasn't uncommon for police departments to really be tracking where a lot of those organizers were going, what they were doing, what they were talking about. In D.C., there was one particular organizer that comes to mind who actually ended up foyering her information um, to see all of the things that the local police department was actually collecting on her and found out that it was a substantial amount, <laughs> which is wild, right? Um, and so when we're talking about surveillance technology, we're talking about all of the ways that government, especially at the local area, can really track you um, and specifically track black and brown communities and how that can have a negative impact on your life outcomes, right? I remember in one conversation I was having with another organizer from another group she was raising concerns about a youth uh, or a young person who went to one agency, and I think it may have been uh, a police agency, and they were able to have all of this information about the young person that they were very shocked about. And so we started having a conversation about, oh, you know, that's probably due to data transfers that take place across local government agencies, right? So you have your local housing agency that collects data. You have your local transportation agency that collects data. You have your police department that collects data. And nine times out of 10, it's not uncommon for that information to be passed along agencies, right? Under the guise of it's to make the community better or to make the community safer. Um, but nine times out of 10, right? It's it's actually coming at a negative impact to, to black and brown folks. That is wild. Um, so I guess if you are going to ever protest, leave that phone at home. Um, don't hand over that data easily. Yeah, that is shocking. Um, I know that it happens. I just, I guess I don't really know how prevalent it is. How do we fight that and how do we protect that? Like how, besides like just leaving your phone at home, what other measures can an individual take to kind of ward against these government surveillance tactics? Yeah, yeah. Um- so that's that's the thing, Jasmine. I a lot of times it's not just about kind of the stingrays or things you can do like leaving your phone uh, at home when you're going out protesting. It's some things are just voluntary when we're talking about policing and surveillance tech. So what, what has been reported across the country is police officers or images being taken. Uh, at these protests and being provided to police departments and that being shared across uh, different agencies. We've seen a litany of new technologies uh, and these these law enforcement agencies not only sharing between themselves, but also selling to other uh, groups outside the law enforcement uh, realm, which is uh, completely troubling and, and scared. So if we're talking about protecting ourselves, it's the first line of defense is education. And I think that is what uh, the, the, the uh, Data for Black Lives uh, on a national level, a national level, as well as uh, all the local hubs across the country we have going on in coalition with some of the other groups are trying to focus on right now is educating people because uh, just simple terms like surveillance technology uh, and, and the intersection between law enforcement and surveillance uh, is lost between uh, from uh, from a lot of people so if you don't know uh some of the terms and the uh what's being put out there how can you combat it 
Uh, so I would encourage anyone that has uh, is listening uh, to this recording to please uh, educate yourself, whether it's through uh, the Dad for Black Lives website or any of the, the number of YouTube channels that talk about surveillance tech to really educate yourselves and, and then uh, share that with other people. Uh, sharing is caring in this. We're talking about social justice. It's it's important because while you may be able to protect yourself, you have to look out for your brother and sister in the streets as well because uh, we're all in this fight together. Wow. Um, I feel like you definitely said a lot. So first of all, we are not going to be cops out here. We're doing their job for them, essentially, by taking these pictures, posting them, tagging them, doing all the heavy lifting for the cops um, when we're doing these things. So do not share pictures. Do not make their job any easier, which now is just like these military and police budgets. I'm like, you're going to earn that money if we're giving it to you. But um, thank you for sharing that, Hamilton. That's um, Education seems like a really big key thing. And then once you do that, you can better protect yourself and you can also spread the word to others. Um, so in that vein, um, and you're talking about the measures that Data for Black Lives is taking to spread education on a national and then um, within these different hubs. I guess what I want to know then is like, what is like the single, if there is a single thing um, that either of you think that people like need to know right now? Like what in our podcast terms, like, what do we need now, um, in your opinions? That's a big question, Jasmine. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. Yeah, I just... She hit you with the fastball, man. No softball thrown <laughs> out here. Um, but no, I think that's a really good question. And I think it's one that we ask ourselves a lot, right? And so I do want to toss this, <laughs> this uh, little tidbit into the equation. Um, is that though we focus on government surveillance, we are also very conscious of how corporate surveillance or surveillance by businesses also kind of factors into this equation, right? And so going back to the whole education portion, a lot of folks don't really know about how the transition of data between a for-profit institution and say a government agency can take place sometimes. Um, And so thinking about things like the Ring app, right? It's a tool owned by Amazon, but in a lot of situations, local police departments were figuring out how to get that information from the Ring app, right? As well as how to get information from the attached mobile application, which mm. was called Neighborhood, where people could post comments or thoughts about, oh, this is taking place in my neighborhood or this is a concern, right? Um, and police departments learning how to scrape that information and use it for their purposes. And so that's... That's another thing that we also have to think about and consider when trying to answer that big question of what we need now, which makes it very complicated. <laughs> um, Seems like we're being attacked on all fronts here. Um. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I think the biggest thing is transparency for our government to to really push for transparency. Right. I think it's very hard, again, to to fight issues or solve things or even to to figure out what you should do on an individual level to protect yourself if you don't really know what's going on. And the big thing, like I said, that we need now is is transparency within our laws um, when it comes to the procurement of technology and the technology that's used, again, under the guise of providing safety and protection for our communities. And I just want to jump in, uh, Jasmine, real quick. Rob said, everything Rob said is right on point. And I just want to add and, and want people to understand that, that are listening to this. These 
for-profit companies are not your friend. Okay. Just take the, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Instagrams, even down to the Amazon shopping uh, app. These companies, these apps, these, these technology, while they are great to have on your phone, great tools to, for comfort of living in a first world country, these companies are for profit and they're not, not your friend. And a lot of these companies, as I said before, and as Rob said, they are sharing data with law enforcement for the sole purpose of policing you. And when I say you, I'm talking about black and brown communities, poor communities, inner city communities. So you are totally correct, Jasmine, talking about we are being attacked on all fronts. So I would encourage, and and I think a lot of people who are doing the, the work, encourage you to just be vigilant and be mindful of what you're doing, what you're sharing within the larger frame of your life. I have a legal background. I don't think I mentioned that earlier, but uh, a lot of these law enforcement agencies are using these companies, these for-profit companies to collect the data to circumvent your Fourth Amendment right. Your Fourth Amendment right, for everyone who uh, may or may not know, is the right to privacy in the larger with, without um, a warrant or uh, and probable cause to get that warrant in the in the social just in the uh, justice framework. How do you get around that? You ask the Googles, the the AWS, the Amazon Web Services of the world to bring app that's supposed to be about protecting yourself and your, and, and your household, you use that information, uh, you take that information from these uh, or really request this information they give it to them through the law enforcement agencies and it's used to really uh, for the sole purpose of oppression. I'm not saying don't get these apps. I mean, I love my uh, my Amazon, uh, Jeff Bezos, you know, curse him going to the moon or whatever he's doing. But <laughs> these are convenient apps. But just be mindful of what you're doing and what you're putting out there in the world. Because it may come back. You're, when you're out doing the work, God's work, and social justice, it may come back to haunt you later down the line. Do we want to get into like some more of like the nitty gritty of like policy wins or different things that have come out that were really interesting? What we've done this year. So back in say in the last year, beginning of this year, well, we kind of got with the Brennan Law Center, which is a part of NYU, who wanted to see if we were interested in a four year request to allow us to look at certain uh, government entities in D.C., so specifically the NPD, our local police department, uh, what type of data they were collecting and who they were selling that data to, how they were using it, who they were sharing it with, who was buying this data, et cetera, et cetera. So let me back up for a second for those who don't know what FOIA is. FOIA is a Freedom of Information Act, which was passed years and years ago. The basic Part of it is that us as citizens have a right to access certain information that the government kind of stores about its citizens and groups. Um, obviously, certain exceptions for itself. It wouldn't be uh, the United States government if they didn't have exceptions carved out to kind of get around that. But generally, you can send a FOIA request about any information, whether it's about yourself or about another government entity, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so we wanted to see what they had. Um, it's been 
what's interesting about the work and kind of the fight that we have going on with the NPD is how much these groups aren't willing to kind of go along with the law, follow the law and provide the information that was very specific, very basic. You kind of question like, what are they hiding or why can't you provide the information? Why do we have to use uh, the full legal power that we have within our grabs to kind of force you to do what you have, what the government has already said that you're supposed to do. And uh, but we have some, a lot of our legal tools that are at our disposal that we're trying to, um, we're in talks with both Brennan and other parties um, and trying to figure out, well, trying to get that information. Rob has been a part of that. Do you have any perspective, kind of like your perception, your take on that? Well, First, I reiterate, yes, it is a difficult process to get information. <laughs> Most definitely. Um, I think anybody who's ever tried to FOIA information specifically from a police department can definitely relate to that. Um, but it's, I think one of the things I'm also recognizing is that there's data that may be procured by an agency that you may may not be procured in the, the typical way or process that it normally is for other technology tools, right? And because of that, there may be things that you just don't see or that's hidden <laughs> um, or that's not really recorded anywhere per se in a formal manner, um, which is a little concerning for me at times. Another thing that I will also flag that came to light for me through this work um, is the idea of fusion centers. So I'm not sure if you've heard of a fusion center before, but it's basically a entity that combines law enforcement from the federal, state, and sometimes local level, and at times in partnership with the private for-profit corporation to collect data and information on the, the public, um, again, under the guise of safety and protection. From my understanding of talking to other people, it's very hard to also FOIA that group. <laughs> um, and a lot of people don't actually know whether or not they're near fusion centers. And chances are, if you live in a big city, you are. The last thing I will also note within this specific work, when it comes to this FOIA process, we were looking specifically at social media monitoring. And there are tools that exist out there that allow folks to... One, again, simply like monitor what you are posting on social media, but also some tools that also have predictive aspects to them that allow whoever is using that tool to kind of figure out, oh, there might be a crowd here um, on this day at this time based off of what's coming through the feeds, right? I said it muted, but yeah, now we're talking about algorithm, which is another term that should be in your toolbox when we were talking about data and technology and uh, surveillance. And so you can imagine like what that looks like if police departments are using that also to like predict when uh, protests might take place or when people might be putting together a rally or something, right? But that's what we specifically were focusing on and trying to get information about. In general, it's hard to, to get information from police departments, but when you're looking for stuff like that in particular, it's super, super hard to get that. It goes back to what Rob and I, kind of the sentiment we really try to hammer home, I think, is just knowing, one, your rights, and two, educating yourself. 
So I guess they're, 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 inter, they're interlocked, but educate yourself about your rights, I guess is the better way to put it, so that you can know how to best protect yourself uh, in whatever circumstances. Um, these companies aren't your friend, and these companies are in league with people who want to oppress you, the police state. So really try to understand how you can best use, uh, find the information that you need and think about what is protection, what protection works for you, what is most convenient, and how to utilize that in your uh, daily walk of life. We're going to dig a little deeper after this short message, so hang tight. Stop me if this sounds familiar. You're sitting in your home and hear a rustling outside. Peek through the blinds and see a person of color coming right for you. Maybe dressed in all brown, carrying a cardboard box, in a vest, holding a clipboard, or worse, in street clothes. You don't know who this person is. What do you do? Assume that the plastic bag they're carrying is for food you ordered an hour before, or play it safe and alert the authorities. Years ago, that would have been fine, but nowadays you have to worry about being the next Barbecue Becky, the next Amy Cooper. What if I said you could call the cops on as many black neighbors as you want without being shamed on social media? That's where Ding Dong Ditch comes in. You know us as one of the most recognized names in doorbell cameras. We face the threat of being canceled when our facial recognition algorithm couldn't recognize black faces as people. No, we couldn't make our algorithm less racist, but that's okay. We failed fast pivoted and made our weakness your strength. We can use it to protect your home and your reputation. You think all black and brown people look alike? Our algorithm does too. We use its bias to detect when any non-white person appears within 30 feet of your door and immediately send the cops to your location. While it's true that times may have changed, with Ding Dong Ditch, you don't have to. Order our latest model on Amazon today. I was wondering if you could expand a little bit about, give an example of how algorithms can be dangerous. Like, what does that look like in action? Yeah, I could I could jump in on that. So I think there have already been a range of cases uh, where this has been extremely detrimental. There was a case, I believe it was in Detroit recently. Oh, Rob, do you um, want to kind of explain what algorithm is or come on, maybe circle back to that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we can actually, I can explain that now um so first i like to start with data so data is just simply any and everything that exists out here in the world right so the clothes you put on um your car uh your your food that you eat the thoughts that you think even your own body those are all data points and so all of us are on a daily basis collecting and creating data now algorithms are just simply like rule books or like a recipe that we follow, right? And so with an algorithm, we're taking data points and based off those data points, we're making a decision about what we should do, right? And so a a really simple way to think about it is, say you are trying to decide on what to eat uh, for dinner. The algorithm that you are using is what is it that I want? What are the data points that I'm focusing on? So like those data points could be 
do I have groceries in the fridge, right? If I don't have groceries in the fridge, uh, is there like a restaurant down the street that I can walk to and get food? What time of day is it, right? All of those things are data points. And then the decisions that you make in order to get to that final conclusion about what dinner will be that night is essentially the algorithm that you're running through. And so you can take that same concept and apply it to, quote unquote, more complex things that take place in the world. And so one example where algorithms can have a huge negative impact on folks is a one is facial recognition technology is a is a big thing that a lot of people talk about right now. Um, And so I think there was a case in Detroit um, where there was a black man who was um, falsely identified using facial recognition technology for something that he did not commit. Oh, right, yeah, right? I heard about um, that. Yes, he was actually, I think, outside playing with his children when the cops came and got him. And, you know, to think about what that experience was like for those children to witness their father being picked up for no reason, it's terrifying. Yeah. I think um, another scenario was Compass, which was a tool built by a private for-profit organization that was supposed to be designed to uh, take out the bias in sentencing in courts. But what folks ended up finding out is that Compass was actually um, giving black and brown folks longer sentences than their white counterparts for no, <laughs> no, there was no legitimate reason, right? And yeah, that was essentially an algorithm. So instead of the judge making a decision, the judge would input data and rely on that algorithmic tool to tell them what they should assign to someone. Right. And I love that you bring that up in this instance, because I think a lot of times we hear and we think algorithms, that's a way to eliminate bias. That's a way to kind of even the playing field. You know, we take people out of it. Um, but I don't think people realize that like, someone is making choices behind the scenes to set up these algorithms like that is a choice um there is always going to be bias in everything and um i think that was a really great way of explaining that yeah definitely Uh, and i will say you know algorithms are are one thing but the the key issue for me is the data that we use oftentimes the data that we are using in my opinion is racist (laughs) right um one of the things we talk about in the data field is that if you have bad inputs, you're gonna have bad outputs, <laughs> right? No matter mm-hmm. what you do. Um, and so a lot of times we're using data and information that's actually connected to racist policies that have taken place throughout the country. Um, and it's being used also by a workforce that is not reflective of the people who are being negatively impacted by the creation. And so when you do look at the data field and those folks who are building algorithms, they tend to be white and male, right? And one big thing when it comes to that, that I I harp on a lot um, is that oftentimes when we're talking about big data and technology and algorithms in connection with human beings, we're often trying to define what I call abstract concepts so concepts that are not really easy to to give a solid definition for. Um, so, for example, a idea or concept that is not abstract would be like a dog. We all have a shared understanding of what a dog is. But if we were talking about something like safety, 
depending on the identities that you hold, where you come from, your idea of safety will be very different from another person, right? Or if we're talking about reliability or trustworthiness will be very different depending on your context. And if you have a workforce that is predominantly comprised of one demographic group, there is a good chance that they may have one idea of what, say, like safety or trustworthiness or reliability is, and they get to define how to measure that, but it may not necessarily be reflective or uh, encompassing of how other groups experience those concepts. Really interesting to think about everyone has a, a different perception, and I think that's a really good way to illustrate that. So I wanted to give you all space if there's anything we didn't talk about or if there's like if you have something that you want to talk about or promote um give you this last couple minutes to share um those things in, in the vein of education and supporting ed- educating not only ourselves and each other i want to make sure uh, uh everyone has like the right tools right uh, so if when you have a time um please uh, go to the Data for Black Lives website, and there was a report. Uh, it, it's called the it's called the, the the Data Capitalism Report, and it has a lot of the terms that we kind of Rob and I kind of loosely throwing around in our work. That uh, Rob's in uh, in data tech, uh, data research. I, I'm not, but I'm learning a lot. So I I we're throwing these words around. You're kind of like ah what. But these are important things to know when we're talking about uh, doing the work. If this is the type, if this is your ministry, definitely read this. It's only brace yourself. It's only forty three pages, <laughs> but it's 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 a lot of great information. Um, you can download it. It's in PDF. You can do it in PDF, or I think you can maybe get it in depending on your computer a, a slideshow type of format. Control F if you're looking for something specific. When we're talking about, uh, Rob was just in his last segment talking about algorithmic racism, policing, surveillance. We're talking about, uh, I think, a word we didn't use specifically. We kind of talked about it without using the term. Uh, what is a data weapon? That's something that's important for you guys to to to, to know and to to use because it's it's, it's prevalent. Uh, look that up. There's also uh, another plug for. Data for Black Lives. They have had a uh, a series of YouTube videos that kind of also really like three, four minute videos, five minute videos, kind of explain some of these terms and kind of get you on the track. If you want to look at that before you looked at the report, that I, I would suggest that. What other things Can I should people interject yeah, go real ahead, quick? Jazz, because you did drop something um, that I've been kind of itching to talk about, and I'm scared to do it in the last couple of minutes. But you have mentioned data capitalism. And I did actually read the report. I took a look through and I actually was there when it was um, revealed and is really fascinating. And I just wanted to know if you could quickly just like touch on like, because like this is the work that you all were doing with um, Amazon, correct? In like, uh, or the protest with Amazon. Um, and I just wanted to know if you could quickly cover data capitalism and unpack that term just a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Essentially, data capitalism is thinking about all the ways that Data is collected um, or created on people with the goal of making money and also, as a result, re-entrenching issues of inequality, right? It kind of goes back to a lot of things we've discussed up to this point around, uh, you know, the things that you uh, go online and look for, 
um, that you put in a search engine, right? How is that information or data that's very personal to you being collected and then either sold to other people or used in some way that negatively impacts you, right? Whether that's restricting ads that you may see for jobs that you would be a fit for, but because some algorithm made a decision about it, you don't see it, right? Or showing you only for-profit colleges, which was a, a issue at one point um, for certain uh, uh, websites, institutions. Um, yeah, it's thinking about all the, the ways that those things happen and how it reinforces a lot of the inequalities that we see in society today. There's an old adage that uh, numbers don't lie, which is on the basic term true, but numbers can be manipulated. And the same thing goes for for, for data. Police... Uh, these big tech companies, when they're talking about data collection and sharing, it, they're going to say, hey, these numbers, this data is what it is. We're not doing anything, but don't be fooled. It can be manipulated and used as a tool and a weapon against us. So I'll just, I, I, I know I sound like a broken record between Rob and I, you're probably tired of hearing say this phrase but like really be careful really educate yourself do the work i i do believe and i think rob believes too if we do the work and we work together we'll have progress um because technology is beautiful and it makes life easier but um it could also be, be evil i mean we've all seen terminator right <laughs> and i will quickly add um first i do want to honor and give a shout out to one, everybody on our leadership team who is consistently putting in the work to help move the ball on a lot of this, as well as all the folks who are in our hub. But also a, a special shout out to to our national team, to Yeshi for the vision that she had, to uh, Tawana, our national organizing director, who has been super helpful in helping us navigate a lot of tricky waters um, into Aki and Paul. who She's number one. They're all number one. Yeah. Into Aki and Paul, who also put together that data capitalism report that's been helping a lot of people put um, some really complex concepts into really digestible terms and helping really guide the work and move it forward. So really want to give them a shout out and honor them. Because I know we've been talking about a lot of things to be scared of. <laughs> I do want to highlight, you know, some work that I've seen or heard of that I think is is profound and outstand, outstanding across the country. One is the, the work of our data bodies. Um, if you haven't heard of that or looked at it, again, it's called Our Data Bodies. It was put together by a couple of folks from, I think, North Carolina, Detroit, um, and maybe L.A. or New York. And they also created somewhat of a strategy book, I think, to kind of help folks think through how to navigate protecting themselves and their community from surveillance. And then I also want to highlight and lift up the work of Mijente. I believe they did a lot of work around tech surveillance and ICE and put together some amazing toolkits. One is for student organizers. And then there's a, uh, a larger communications, I think, toolkit. Um, as well as a comic book that they put together, which is super, super dope to kind of help explain how surveillance oh, tech and ICE yeah, work think... together and how it impacts black and brown folks. Awesome. Another big question, and I apologize, but um, what kind of brings you hope when you're 
looking at this and it just feels like the scale is so big. Um, I know that you're saying like there's a lot of initiatives, but like where do you guys personally derive like your sense of like how do you move forward through this? Because I'm imagining it's really heavy. Uh, if you guys can't see us, but uh, Rob is pointing at me because he knows I'm the local pessimist. I'm always ready and down for the fight, but I'm not. I don't always think about the victory. I just want to get to the victory. I may not be at the party. I may be tired from the party. Uh, from excuse me from the from the the fight i might be tired from the fight so i might miss the the victory party but um to answer your question jasmine ah i i I would have to say uh, the level of awareness based off the last i would say five years of society as we are today i'm speaking specifically about the killings of black people around america because of police brutality uh the the engagement of people, uh, young people, uh, young black people in the political sphere to uh, truly, really understand how this world works and how everything is connected uh, from the prison system to the criminal justice system to data and technology, so on and so forth. And taking these pieces together and laying out a map and really wanting to uh, educate themselves and the people around them so that we can better our lives. So we're not talking about this 60 years from now when we're we're at the, the the later stages of our lives. So I'm excited that people are coming to these groups, are interested, and not just Black people, other groups, including folks who are, are white, white-led groups, are wanting in the fight, whereas people have maybe been more passive in some of these talks. I think the last couple of years, especially the uprising that occurred last uh, summer, has really galvanized a new group of social justice uh, as uh, some folks say social justice warriors as a pejorative. Uh, I think it's 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 a, a, a title that is um, it's full of praise. Uh, people really want to change and don't want things that happened 60, 70, 100 years ago to be prevalent 60, 70, 100 years from now. Yeah, appreciate that, Amazon. Um and I think I can, I definitely resonate with a lot of that. I, I will answer this question in like two different ways. A very raw thing to do. Just <laughs> it <out> is. There. <laughs> um, the first way is at a more general approach towards just movement work. I, I see movement work as a, in some aspects, a never ending road. And that's how I often describe it to people. And I think sometimes people get a little disheartened by that view of movement work. But for me, it's not a disheartening viewpoint. It's a realistic one, I think, but also one to to kind of help you reimagine how you see your role in the work and how you continue pushing yourself forward. And so when I look at it in that way, I find hope or what I would call wins or successes in the little things, right? This work is like a pie. I want to find the section of the pie that I understand that I feel as though I can make an impact on and I want to attack that piece of the pie. Doesn't mean that the pie will be completely gone if I accomplish what I want to accomplish, but at least a portion of it is cut down. Mm. And then I also find joy in inspiring 
other people to come into the space or to take up the mantle of the work, right? I think the biggest loss or the biggest loss in this work is if there is nobody left to continue it. And so sometimes for me, actually, what may seem like a loss to certain people, like say you're losing a certain policy or a certain uh, campaign, can be a win to me if it inspires or galvanizes other people to come out and continue doing the work at a at a degree or a level that it wasn't at before. That brings me hope. When it comes to data work specifically and data justice, I think the rise of organizations like Data for Black Lives, uh, the rise of organizations like the Algorithmic Justice League, Black Futures Lab, you are starting to see a lot of black and brown led organizations and also women led organizations who are really trying to tackle this issue. And I think that is, is beautiful and also gives me a lot of hope. But I also think the policy wins that take place that we may not always be aware of, right? Whether that's like the, I think it's the GDPR um, in Europe um, or local policy wins that take place across the country, whether that's in LA or New York or in Massachusetts. And so those little moments also give me hope. Um, wow. It's a yeah. very me answer, man. I, I just want to say that I totally agree with Rob. Like, when when you this this fight is never ending and it shouldn't end when you have a country founded on the enslavement of uh people black people will never be a perfect union but that isn't to say that we can be a better union um so there's always going to be a need as rob said of people to do the work the work is going to change uh so you have to change with it and there's going to be a space for people to, to do what they do best, whether it's if you're a march on the street, march on the street. If you're someone who's more uh, organized, organize the marches and, and, and the talks and the conferences. If you're someone who's more of a, uh, hey, I, I can't do that, but I can do things in the background like write legislation or, or uh, get funding for some of these, or, uh, these organizations and groups, do that. We're not all the same. We all have different skills. We have different passions. We have different avenues and access to for things to work in our favor. Figure it out and do the work. Because if we all pitch in, we can have a better tomorrow. We can we can look back at the end of our lives. And while there still be work to be had, I'm sure uh, we can all honestly say, hey, it was bad, but it's not as bad or it's much better than it was. So I just wanted to say thank you, Robin Hamilton, for both sharing your hopes and dreams and some of your fears with me today. There are a lot of constructive things that we can take from this conversation. And just wanted to say thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedules to be here in conversation with what we need now. What we need 